everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. And it's at the top of the page of zbooks.co at the link, my new book. And it's going to help you with all of your self-publishing needs. Okay, back to that podcast. Welcome to ZBooks Successful Authors Podcast. And with me, I have a man with many years experience as a surgeon and healing. He pioneered group therapy, among other things. Help me welcome Bernie Siegel to the podcast. Hello, Dr. Bernie. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, last time we talked about some really, really, really cool stuff about healing. Carl Jung, your experience yeah. as a surgeon. And um, could you just um, summarize that again? You were a well, surgeon for like I 20 years. I've never been probably a normal surgeon. Yeah. I see. I, I became a surgeon for several reasons, but one was I cared about people. Mm. And then it got to be very painful because you couldn't cure everything. And also it questioned my faith. How can I have faith in a God who did this mm. to people? I did a lot of children's surgery and the kids were born with, you know, all kinds of deformities, parts of their organs, not not created, you know, internally. And it was like, what kind of God would do this? So I was asking a lot of questions back in those years. And I may say, to put it in one sentence, what changed me was going out seeking help. Um, And at a conference that I thought was only for doctors, because Dr. Carl Simonton had written a book called Getting Well Again and was running the conference in Connecticut. I show up and 150 people are in the audience and I'm the only doctor there. It blew my mind that he's helping empower patients and not one doctor in the entire state comes to see him. But you see, here is what happened. We're not in an office now. I sit down. My patients came over and sat around me because I didn't scare them. They, uh, I think with a lot of doctors, nobody would go near them if you were their patient. Um, <laughs> but this one young lady, and I don't know where she is, and I wish I could find her. She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. Mm-hmm. That changed my entire life because I thought if I could help people live, I'm not a failure. I may not cure every disease, but if I could help them live. And yeah. years ago, I was in every famous talk show and all the magazines because controversial Dr. Siegel. That's the headline, <laughs> see? Yeah. And people like Oprah would have other doctors there, which she didn't tell me about. She'd say, would you like to be on my show? Of course. And then I'd show up and there'd be four doctors sitting there to tell me I'm 
you know, a nutcase and don't know what I'm talking about and what difference does it make? And why am I blaming my patients? Because I want to know what's happening in their life. And it just, you know, wore me out. But it but turned out you were right. Huh? Pardon? It turned out that you were right, for example. Yeah, see, the audience would be nodding their heads agreeing with me. But the other doctors would be shaking their head the other way. And, and yes, I have in books too, when, when doctors or their loved ones have gotten cancer, then they start writing and thanking me. And one said, I, I want to apologize to you for what I used to think of you. But now that my wife has cancer, you're a big help. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, I mean, I mean, it's just tip of the iceberg when we talk about group therapy yeah. and drawing, drawing analysis in therapy. Oh, but you yeah. pioneered a lot of that. And all they all the things I learned, mostly because I was seeking help. I drew a yeah. picture for Elizabeth Cooper Ross at one of her workshops, an outdoor scene from my imagination. What were her first two questions? Why is 11 important for you? I said, what do you ask that? You drew 11 trees. And I said, well, I've been doing this work 11 months. What are you covering up? Why'd you ask that? It's a white piece of paper. You used a white crayon to make snow on the mountain. It's already white. You added a layer. And I was covering up all my feelings. That's part of why I went to the workshop. And it was question after question that was like, holy smokes. How did, how did that come in this crazy drawing? But that led me back to the hospital with a box of crayons. And it was unbelievable how much people told you. See, the other was I began to seek out Jungian therapists because art therapists don't know anatomy. Neither does a Jungian therapist necessarily, um, unless they've been to medical school first. But um, one of them, uh, oh, what's her name? She was, she's in London, uh, Susan Bach, B-A-C-H. Uh, she wrote, life paints its own span, because she worked with kids who had no problem doing a drawing. They weren't worried about, am I an artist? Am yeah, I doing yeah. it right? And when I went to visit her, uh, she said, Jung was fascinated by the somatic aspects of the drawings, because she saw that I was too, pointing out anatomy and other things in it. And I said, yes, because he knows anatomy. You don't. So you don't see what we see. And so there are people I operated on or didn't operate on based on their drawing, knew what their disease was. I mean, it's just, they don't know they're drawing it. I mean, one of the funniest, just so you understand, this boy came to the hospital for circumcision. He walks in and the kids and the parents knew I liked drawing. So they often had them do it ahead of time. But I always had the crayons there for them. And he handed me two drawings. He said, this is like before, this is like after. Now, there are two airplanes in profile, and they look like two penises, <laughs> one with a foreskin, one without. Hmm. I mean, everybody in the operating room is laughing <laughs> because this didn't kids didn't talk about it as my operation or any. He just said, this is like before, this is like after. Wow. And I don't think that he was thinking about it, you know, when he drew it, yeah. but that's what appeared. And again, um, there was something that said, um, you'll be met by an anesthesiologist who's wearing an outfit like green pajamas. 
you know, in the color green pajamas. Yeah. And because the anesthesiologists were so fascinated by the kids, they made a booklet for them to draw before we operated. And then we knew everything we needed to know about the kids. Some of the kids drew the operating room before they were in it. Hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, this kid, um, oh, what was I going to tell you now? Oh, yeah. The anesthesiologist dressed in green. He drew him in red. And I said, there's a danger signal. Look at the last page, because if he draws himself in purple, spiritual color, he's telling us he's going to die. Hmm. And I'm not operating on him if he draws himself in purple on the last page. The last page was some red and black. You know, I'm hurting and I'm not happy. So he said, okay. But the anesthesiologist then said to me, Bernie, that's fascinating. I said, what? He said, the anesthesia is a danger to him. His mother has muscular dystrophy, and if he has a genetic defect, he could have an adverse reaction to muscle relaxants. Have mm -hmm. the opposite happen, they all go into contractions, raises body temperature, can do brain damage. And that's why I said, look at the last page. And hmm. since he didn't draw himself, you know, in purple, I said, okay, we can go ahead. He'll be all right. He may not be happy, but he'll be okay. So what and happened? the that's what changed the hospital yeah because they all thought i was a nutcase <laughs> you know i mean yeah. what the hell the drawing mean why and but then it became fascinating from playing music yeah. in the operating room changing the whole environment mm. and how it affected everybody's attitude but tell and, us some more about that book how many pages did he draw oh there there were like maybe there were eight or ten pages you see, it's Blank. the first page would yeah. be you coming in, meeting the anesthesiologist, mm -hmm. uh, going in the operating room. And the last page was, and this was also interesting, mommy and daddy will be waiting for you when you come out to take you home. What did the anesthesiologist put on that page? The child and his mother. Hmm. Because the fathers don't show up to take the kids home. So even though he writes at the body, uh, at the bottom, you, you know, your mom and dad will be waiting. Dad isn't there. And that's what they realize is so fascinating because yeah. even the anesthesiologist is telling the truth with the picture, not with the words. <laughs> but um, you give them blank pages or you have prompts? No, the, the one in the operating room had all these blank outlines. Oh, of, okay. You know, yourself yeah. and the anesthesiologist and the operating room. And mommy and daddy waiting to, yeah. So this had like four to six pages in it. Wow. Um, but when I, I tell them to draw a picture, I'm not giving specific directions. I'm just saying have all colors available. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll say draw a picture of yourself in the operating room. That's it. Mm -hmm. I'm not describing it, telling them what to draw. So for some, it's this beautiful place, you know, filled with people taking care of you mm -hmm. and love. And others, it's, you know, more like a coffin. You're lying on a table. The only crayon you use is black. There isn't a soul in the operating room with you. Nobody outside waiting for you. And I tell people, don't have the surgery. Mm -hmm. Well, I want it. I said, then you've got to change your attitude. Picture yourself having it and everything going beautifully. I just had a phone call from a lady who, who was going to have a mastectomy and you know, mixed feelings and people telling her, oh, don't do that. Uh, I said, look, 
if you want to go ahead, which she said she did, then visualize yourself going to the hospital and having the surgery and doing beautifully. You know, three, four times a day, just stop for a few minutes. And she called me to tell me how beautifully that worked out. I mean, she had no problems. Everything went so well. And she called me uh, to thank me, you know, for the instructions I gave her. Awesome. And now it turned out good. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you're changing. See, your body believes what your mind conceives of. Mm -hmm. That rhymes so, too. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So if you think, oh, this is hell. Uh, this is going to be torture. Uh, yeah. That's what your body expects. Yeah. And so some people will draw God as the source of their treatment. And others, it's the devil giving me poison. Mm. And guess who's going to have side effects? Yeah, the, the See, this is, let me say this too, because this is one of the things that drove the doctors crazy, but put them on my team at the hospital. Hmm. The, my patients became labeled, that's one of Siegel's crazy patients. <laughs> Why? Because yeah. you're having radiation and the doctor thinks the machine is broken. She's not having any reaction at all. So he said to her, how come you don't have any, you know, side effects of the treatment? Of the reaction. She said, oh, I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. Huh. That changes the doctor, see? Interesting. Yeah, and then there were other times where the machine was broken and the patients had side effects and shrinking tumors. So the doctor didn't know that there was no radioactive material in the machine. Yeah, that's amazing. And not put it back in. Yeah. And he was telling me how terrible he felt not treating anyone for an entire month, you know, when you do your routine inspection. And I said, you're not stupid. It's because everybody acted as if they were being treated. Yeah, so crazy. that's what made it a compliment. Oh, that's one of Siegel's crazy patients. That means they're going to do fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. But that, well, that was an experiment. That experience was amazing because nobody knew until right. what was it weeks afterwards when he checked the machine and said, that's Oh no, right. there's no stuff in it. Yeah. And, and like all of the patients got better, huh? Yeah, they all responded in some way. Amazing. Uh, I know. And he yeah. felt so terrible. He almost fainted when I told him, you're not nuts. You know, and <laughs> the hypnotherapist wouldn't be so surprised by that, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Because again, the mind, in a sense, dictates to the body how to react yeah. and what to do. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, for all people, Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. Are you mm -hmm. feeling about your job and going to work? And yeah. that's the, the opposite side I learned with the groups that when people, oh, I have two months to live, so I'm moving to Colorado. I'm buying a house on the ocean down in Florida. I'm getting a dog and, and all these things. Or this lawyer, I never wanted to be a lawyer. My parents drove me crazy. They wouldn't let me be a violinist. So I'm quitting law. I'm going to be a violinist now, getting a job in an orchestra. None of them died when they were supposed to. Hmm. One of them even wrote me a letter that ends with all the things that she did. And it ends with, I didn't die. And now I'm going crazy. Help. Where do I go from here? She's <laughs> doing so many things to enjoy life. She's yeah. exhausted. I told her, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your, your transition. Um, because I remember you telling me, Go ahead, go ahead. You wanted to say so something? I was just thinking, in college, I had one C in four years, creative writing. Uh-huh. 
And now I have close to 20 books. I don't remember how many, but you'd say, how the hell did that happen? <clears throat> I learned to stop thinking, see, like a science major and to pay attention to feelings and experience. And it's more like writing, well, this is wonderful in William Soroyan's work, because I used to write tons of letters before the computer came out. I never had trouble writing a letter because it was the feelings. And uh, from uh, the Godfather, Mario Puzo, I met him, he became a friend. He said when he has to write, he goes in, sits down in his office, and he waits for the characters to tell him what to write. They, now, I never thought that way. I was always thinking what they should do and say. Yeah. And so that's why you got to see. But Soroyan said it in this beautiful way. There's a writer writing about the war, and he's got a young soldier helping him. And he comes into his office one day, and he says to the young man, you're quite a writer, too. And the kid says, what are you talking about? I've never written anything. No, the letter on your desk to your father. And the kid says, it's only a letter to my father. All right, then write a letter to everyone. That explained it all to me. I never had trouble writing letters, but I couldn't write a book or a story. And what I did was not write it. I talked it out, which was more natural. So tape recorder, and I sat and talked for hours and hours and hours. Then they gave it to a writer editor who turned it, you know, put it together and organized it in a book. But they, yeah, and my wife, it was good having my wife as an editor because she could hear what the, you know, co-editor wrote and she would say, honey, that's not you. Hmm. And then we could change the language, you know what yeah. I mean? So it sounded like me. Yeah. And that was your first book? Yeah, Love, Medicine and Miracles. And again, I never expected to write it. Why do you write it? See, there are no coincidences. That's yeah. something I never forget Elizabeth Kubler-Ross saying. And I can mention Jung for you if you want what he yeah. said. But she would always say to me, burn it. There are no coincidences. So a guy walks up and he says, hey, why don't you write a book instead of running all over the planet trying to help people? Give them a book to read. I said, I don't know how to write. I'm never going to write a book. And then a mystic who was my patient called me one day and said, you're going to write, I think she said six books. I'm past that now. But um, <laughs> I said to her, you're nuts. I, I don't know how to write. But the man who said you need to write a book gathered some people together to help me. And that's when I started dictating it and all the people came together to put it together. Awesome. Know? So tell us about your, your new books. Is that how you wrote this new one? No endings, only beginnings? Well, this is interesting because let me mention two books that just came out. This one's the no endings, only beginnings. Yeah. No, that and, one's when you realize how perfect everything is. Yeah. When you real, yeah. Oh, I mean the other one, but <laughs> see, I started to write this book, no endings, only beginnings. Because mm -hmm. I was feeling, it says it in there, some, we should all write Bible too, our own personal Bible, our own stories. They, yeah. And I started talking to one of our grandchildren and I couldn't believe how spiritual he was mm -hmm. when I was conversing with him. He's 30. Mm -hmm. It took me twice as long to deal with all my pain and write journals, you know, and get it out and then start writing books and so forth. But 
he's so far ahead of me. It's like he was my teacher. His name is Charlie. And so he and I put this book together. When you realize how perfect everything is, it's a combination of all our poems. Yeah. It was amazing because I said, let me send you the poems I've written. He said, I've written some. I'll send you mine. And it was like, we're the same person. You know <laughs> what I mean? Writing the same poem. So they're like on one page, you'll have two poems, one on each side, one by me uh, and one by him, see? And, and you read through different times. And also what was interesting, I'm an artist. That's part of why I became a surgeon too. I want to use my hands. So I paint portraits. He takes nature photographs. Mm -hmm. So the two of us, it was like <laughs> God put us together, you know? Interesting. And also I want to mention on the cover of the book, there's a bird flying. Yeah. And I said to him, Charlie, it should be two birds. We wrote the book. He said, no, that's the reader finding their way. And that's why he's so interesting and sensitive. You know, an answer like that impressed me too. And then to get to my point, my other book, No Endings, Only Beginnings. And I mean that literally, life does not end. Mm -hmm. I've had a near-death experience. I've had a past life experience. And I didn't seek it out. I almost choked to death as a child. Somebody on the telephone said to me, why are you living this life? And I went into a trance. And I may add, why am I a surgeon? I killed with a sword. Hmm. I'm sure I was an Irish knight. Because hmm. Ireland has always had a connection for me. And as a matter of fact, I helped a woman who was in labor and going to miscarry. Hmm. She called me because she knew me because she had had cancer. I went to the hospital. The room was filled with doctors, nurses, and family, all who were grieving. It felt sickening to walk in the room. Hmm. So I couldn't help it. I yelled, get out of here. And they all looked at me like, who is he? What is he? I said, get out of here. And they ran. They didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> cool. And then I got her to meditate, communicate with her uterus, stop the labor. Hmm. She had a full-time delivery of a boy. Phone rings. Bernie, we're naming him after you. <laughs> cool. But we're Irish, so his name is Brady. <laughs> and this is why I've had so many connections. Even going to rescue an animal at the you know dog one day, yeah. I got a, I hear voices that say, "Go to the animal shelter." So <laughs> I go down there and I walk in. There's this big Alaskan husky, and I said, "What's his name?" They said, his name is Brady. He just got here this morning. <laughs> Crazy, say, huh? I'll take him home. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, things like that. Is that, I, isn't I, that I, a young I, synchronicity concept? That's not a coincidence? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it's not a coincidence. Yeah. See, what Jung said was, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. <laughs> so we're creating our future. You know, it's like, how did I meet the man who said you should write a book? Why was he there at that moment? And, and again, or I always say, when you get a flat tire, don't get upset. You're on the way to the airport. Maybe you're going to miss a plane that crashes. You know what I mean? So, yeah. 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 And, and I grew up with those messages from my parents, and so did Charlie, and very spiritual parents, too, who meditated and did, and he was homeschooled. You know, I would have said, no, that's not a good thing. They let him go to school, you know, but... I've learned, keep your mouth shut and let's see what the future brings. And my parents were 
God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. I wasn't allowed to have a problem. Hmm. It drove me nuts as a kid. <laughs> I mean, if you had a horrible day at school and came home and said, Ma, I had a terrible day at school. Hmm. It was meant to be. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. What was my <laughs> thought? My mother is no help. Yeah. She doesn't want to listen to me and my troubles. But I learned from her, like I'm saying, that she's right. Things happen. And uh, it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had a, you know, a problem. So I learned to just wait that's, and watch what happens. Yeah. That's a tough one, though, because um, some, I, I don't know if it was Buddha or whatever. They say um, everything happens for a reason. But when yeah. you're on the wrong end of the stick, you're really wondering what the hell was the reason for that. Know. You know? But you don't know what it's going to do for you tomorrow or next year. <laughs> and this is why I didn't even realize I used Charlie's poem, The No Endings Only Beginnings. A doctor's notes on living, loving, and learning who you are. So I'm, I was rereading it because <clears throat> I reread some of my books because it's like reading it for the first time. You don't remember things that happened years ago and the lessons in them. He wrote this, where is God in all of this? You ask yourself, head in your hands, water washing over your body from a shower or the rain or your tears. Where is God in all of this? The question echoes across the whole of the gymnasium as your peers laugh and the fear sets in. Where is God in all of this? It is a question we all ask at some point in our lives. Turn the question inward and let it reverberate through your heart, your mind, your soul, every fiber of your very being. Where is God in all of this? He is in your heart, in your breath. He is in every action you take and in every life you touch. Will you accept his presence here? Will you act as an agent of miracles today? Where is God in all of this? God is with me and I am with God. Repeat it, feel it, live it. And it's from his poem, The Answer Lies Within. Hmm. Now, you know, that's why when I saw the things that he wrote as a young man, it's like, where the hell is that coming from? But I immediately connected with him and we ended up putting the other book together because of all our feelings and, you know, that we shared. Yeah. And uh, he's just something special. And Is that me, your favorite poem? This poem that I wrote, it reminds me a little of him because you said that I have, I, I can't say I have a favorite poem, but I'm asked to be prepared for eternity. How do I prepare? Where will I spend it? Find questions for philosophers. I don't have that trouble. Eternity troubles me not at all. I am having trouble with today. If I can master today, eternity will take care of itself. Eternity, from what I know of it, can't be as much trouble as today. When eternity comes, I'll take it one day at a time. Now, you know, I would write those kinds of things because of what I went through at the hospital. And my wife was also, like Charlie, a help because she, I mean, I kept my journal hidden because it was full of tragedies and pain. And one night I forgot to hide it. And the next day she said to me, you know, there's nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. What are you talking about? And she said, well, these are the jokes you tell us at dinner about crazy things that happen in the hospital. 
and she would recite these jokes and I would remember them. And I thought, boy, that's interesting. I never put something that makes me laugh in my journal. See? Yeah. Let me give you an example, because one of the things I never forget now, I could show it to you if you want to see it, but it's a lunch pail, red, with the word love all over it a million times. And my wife would make lunch for me, and I'd open it, and she'd write a note, you know, I love you, and X's and O's, and pictures of our kids and the animals and so forth. One day, I had a horrible day, all kinds of complications and problems in the emergency room, and three o'clock in the afternoon, I finally, oh, I got a minute, let me go get my lunch pail. I open it, there's a piece of paper, and it said only hold on. <laughs> and I thought, how the hell did my wife know what kind of a day it was gonna be? Hmm. So I really pulled myself together and I got through the day. I got home that night, I said, I have to thank you. <laughs> he said, for what? For your note. I don't know how you knew I was going to have a horrible day, but I held on because of your note. And she said, honey, it was a big sandwich with a lot of vegetables. I just wanted you to hold on. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, those are the kinds of things you don't forget. See, that yeah. make you yeah. have to get you through the day. Yeah. So that's a matter of fact, that's in that book. I think at the end, I said to people, remember, hold on. <laughs> cool yeah. yeah but again my wife as a matter of fact she did some stand-up comedy she died two years ago but she did one-liners and and i realized because of her work how humor and laughter benefited people in other words i could get up speak for an hour and she would be like the intermission she'd get up people would laugh for 10 or 15 minutes and when i'd get back on the stage everybody looked healthier and younger <laughs> you know, it, it impressed the hell out of me. So I began to make a point to them that I'm not having her come up here just to give you a break. It's to make you feel the difference in your body after you laugh for 15 minutes yeah. versus yeah. listening to me for two hours. <laughs> and literally, she would get more thank yous at the end than I did because of what she gave to people. You know, and, as a matter of fact, and studies have verified this, that cancer patients were asked to laugh for no apparent reason every three or four hours. Hmm. Control group, you know, if something funny happens, laugh, but don't laugh for no reason. And the ones who laugh for no reason had a better survival rate. Mm -hmm. It's like the psychiatrist who tried to prove I was wrong because he said, Siegel's crazy. What the hell difference does it make if somebody goes to a group, you know? Yeah. So he started a group. And at the end of his study, the people who joined the group had a better survival rate than his control group. Yeah, and he yeah. was honest enough to publish it and talk about it and then, you know, That's cool. support yeah. me. Yeah. What was his name? Oh, I can't remember to tell you yeah. the truth. Was in this was in the 70s, huh? Yeah, that was way back. Yeah, yeah we started the group in 78. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you were one of the first to do group therapy. Yeah. But yeah. you see, psychiatrists more often began to agree with me. Like when the AIDS epidemic came out, one named, I think it was George Solomon, he wrote um, about an immune competent personality. What was he writing? The fact that certain patients with AIDS do better, you know, in terms of survival, even becoming HIV negative. 
And what was it about? Their personalities, hmm. meaning how they live. It's like saying no to what you don't want to do, asking for help, having some humor in your life, having meaning, you know, in your daily activities. So he could see it's no different than cancer, AIDS, or anything else. Yeah, when people had meaning. Was there one men thing? Men will say things like, I can't work, what's the point of living? And they go home and die. Yeah. Women, I mean, these are quotes. I can't die till all married and out of the house about her kids, <laughs> see? Yeah. Um, and so women outlive men with the same diseases, smoke as much or less lung cancer, all kinds of statistics because of what their body chemistry is like. And now that we stay, understand genes much better, we realize something turns them on and off, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah, Kids yeah. Just, just don't get the same thing on the same day. I've heard of that, It's yeah. what their personalities are like. And did that one doctor find a common uh, uh, character of these guys that uh, were yeah. HIV negative or what was it? They were just you mean when, If they survived or converted, yeah. As I said, they had a sense of meaning in their daily activities. Some of the most important, well, they asked for favor from friends if they needed it. Mm -hmm. They said no to things they didn't want to do. That's the most important. Mm -hmm. You're asked... Because the question is, a friend or family member asks you to do a favor you do not want to do, what do you tell them? The correct answer is no. Yeah. See? If you said, yeah, I want to do it, fine. That's not what I'm asking. You don't want to do it. Hmm. See? And nurses have a hell of a lot of trouble with that question. 95% hmm. of nurses say, oh, I would go do it. Well, you're a nurse for the wrong reasons, you know? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the sense of you know, some humor in their life. I can't remember all, there were about eight or nine questions uh, that were just very simple about life. Mm -hmm. I mean, one young lady, maybe sums it up best, with, with AIDS years ago, wrote on her refrigerator a sign, when you live in your heart, magic happens. Mm -hmm. And she converted. And I know others who, while in prison, went from HIV positive to negative. Wow. You say, how the hell do you do that? But they, were the type who end up helping other prisoners. You know what I mean? Mm. And so they're again, finding meaning in their life, even though they're in prison. And the same was true in concentration camps. I have articles by doctors who were thrown into a concentration camp with all their patients. They expect everybody to die. They got heart disease, cancer, mobiles, there's nothing I can do for you. Mm. But they were told in the concentration camp, if you don't work, you put a bullet through your head or you go to the gas chamber. And then he saw the ones who wanted life, how they survived despite their disease. As he said, they didn't end up in the infirmary, you know, where it meant the end of their life. Yeah. They yeah. found ways to perform and do those things. Yeah. Wow. I, I wanted to go back to that um, one part about laughing therapy. Have you tried that or done that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've visited all these things and done, mm -hmm. you know, parts of it. I, I'm a character, so I'm always laughing. Yeah. Uh, because everybody knows me. I'll tell you some of the things I do in public. But yeah, I went to some of the laughter workshops and, and you could feel the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, you're laughing for no damn reason at all and you're feeling wonderful. But so, what if you're laughing for a reason? I didn't get that. Well, that's good too. <laughs> okay. That's even better. See, yeah, what I yeah. do to people... And some of them get annoyed with me because <laughs> they come by, like you're taking a walk with the dog. Somebody says, how are you doing? I mm -hmm. said, don't ask. Why bring up all my troubles? 
Yeah. Next time you see me, say, have a nice day or you're looking well today. And some people really get mad at me, like, oh, a rude guy. You know, I'm trying <laughs> to be nice. And, but what happens? You go into a store. The cashier says, how are you today? I said, don't ask me that when I come in the store. Yeah. Tell me you're looking well today. I don't want to think of all my problems. And the people in the store look at you like, what an awful person. <laughs> then an old-time employee came out of the back. This really happened. And she saw me and she said, oh, you're looking wonderful today. And the whole store bursted out laughing. They, <laughs> because they knew I'm a character and I'm kidding. Yeah. So I, I would say that to all the cashiers, you know, don't, but you get to know them and we have mm -hmm. fun together because they know they can talk to me and laugh with me. Mm -hmm. Now that, that down at our uh, stop and shop, there's a policeman there all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always talk to the police because I was a police surgeon for a while. Oh, Especially with what's going on uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, I was the police surgeon for that unit. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, you realize what it's like to be out on the street. Mm -hmm. it, it's easy to get mad at the police, but if somebody's shooting at you, trying to kill you, and you survive, and the next day you have to go out on the street again, it ain't so easy to step out yeah. when you know yeah. what happened the day before. But I found that whether you're a policeman, because um, Carl Manning is a psychiatrist, wonderful guy, he wrote a book many books. One is man against himself, but he was saying aggression can be healthy. See? <laughs> How do you make it healthy? You join a football team. <laughs> see? You get into athletics and you get that energy out. You're opposing someone, but you become a hero because of what you do. See? Yeah. And so I, I was also a doctor for a football team and a hockey team. And these guys are knocking their heads together but yeah. off, off the field, uh, they were some of the friendliest, loveliest guys I've ever met. Yeah. Um, and let me tell you the extreme about it, too. My phone rings one day. I'm sitting in the office. It's a policeman. So I pick up the phone, and he says, Dr. Siegel, it's Jimmy Jackson. I'm committing suicide. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? Tell him I love him. You're a wonderful person. Please don't. I said, that's what he's looking for. That isn't going to stop a damn thing. He wouldn't call me. You know, if there wasn't some real reason, it's something I could do. And he's, he was a former football player and a big black man. And um, I said to him, Jimmy, if you commit suicide, I'll never talk to you again. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> I'd say, what kind of an idiot are you? He's going to, why didn't you talk? Try to change his mind. I thought, that's not going to work. He didn't call me to change his mind. He hmm. called me looking for some kind of love. Hmm. You know? About 15 minutes later, and that's why I mentioned he was a football player, he came bursting in the door to the office. I <laughs> thought he was going to throw me out the window of the building. Because he was so angry, screaming at me. You <laughs> an idiot. I got a gun in my mouth. I'm going to blow my brains out. You say something so stupid. <laughs> I said, Jimmy, what? Did you notice something? What? You're not dead. <laughs> and then he looked at me like, oh, you smart ass. <laughs> knew that would do it. 
and we became <laughs> lifetime friends. That's cool. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. But those are the kinds of things I would do. Oh, and, and one more that I, you want a pizza, but you call the Chinese restaurant, say, <laughs> they answer, you say, uh, I want to order a pizza. They say, I think you have the wrong number. There's a Chinese restaurant. And then you call the pizza place and you order Chinese food. Mm -hmm. Well, if you do that often enough, what happens now? See, I call the pizza place. I say, oh, I'd like to order uh, some Chinese food tonight. And they say, <laughs> is this Dr. Siegel? I say, yes. <laughs> and then we order the pizza. And the same thing at the Chinese restaurant. I want to order a pizza. Oh, Dr. Siegel. Yes. What is it you want? <laughs> they know it's me because nobody else acts that idiotic. Yeah. But they laugh and smile because I act that way. And I think that they find it healthy and makes them feel happy. And that's all I want to do is to let that happen. That's awesome. but I did a lot of children's surgery. And so it's like acting like a child. See, again, on my website, BernieSiegelMD.com, I have an article, Deceiving People Into Health. Because I realize if you lie to people, it can be hypnotic because it's coming from their doctor. So one of the simplest examples I always say, you take an alcohol sponge that we use to clean the skin before you give people injections or draw blood. So I would say to the kids, you're lucky. This is a new kind of sponge. It numbs your skin as well as cleaning it. And the kids would look up at me. Why don't the other doctors use that? <laughs> Three quarters of them felt nothing because all I did was say it's going to numb your skin. The others, yeah. nobody ever said, oh, it hurt like a real, you know. The others would say, it didn't work. I felt a, like a little needle, hmm. you know? And I said, oh, yeah. it must have been a bad sponge. Lying. And the kids, they're grateful for my lies, which are hypnotic and get them through the trouble. Yeah. And it works with adults too. You know, if you can distract them enough, uh, amazing things happen. And how did you do that? What do you mean? The, oh, with the adults. Well, I was going to say, I don't want to hear this one. My mother-in-law, she um, is a wonderful lady, was an opera singer, but she, she was such a perfectionist because of her opera training. I learned that from other opera singers. If you hit the wrong note, it's a disaster, you know, <laughs> like the end of your life. So she developed a hernia because her husband, my father-in-law, uh, injured his spine and was partially paralyzed. So she was helping him and lifting and pushing and developed the hernia. So we take her to the hospital and I'm doing it under a local type anesthesia. So she's awake and, you know, I can talk to her. And, and I knew though, that if I could embarrass her, she would have no pain and no trouble recovering from surgery. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the surgery, I'm thinking desperately, what can I say to embarrass her? Then, oh, it came to me. She's in her 80s. And I yell out so loud, everybody in the whole damn operating room heard me. Now remember, no sex for six weeks after surgery. <laughs> they take her to the recovery room. I get dressed and go to check on her. And she's not there. I can't find her. I said, where the hell's my mother-in-law? They said, she came here, refused pain medication, asked for her clothes, and went home. <laughs> I knew what I did worked. 
You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she didn't have any pain. Her son-in-law was a pain, but not <laughs> the operation. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'd like to um, backtrack again to your transition from surgeon to, to healer. Was it one, yeah. an overnight thing? I'm glad or? you said that because I was saying I met a, a, a policeman in Stop and Shop. Um, and with what's going on in the world today, what you have to think about is why did you become a doctor? Why do you become a policeman? Why do you become a plumber? It doesn't matter. I would say to people, draw yourself working as a doctor. And it blew my mind. Medical students draw themselves sitting behind a desk with their diploma on the wall. No patients. In a whole class of medical students, only one drew himself really being a doctor, kneeling in front of a lady in a wheelchair and handing her a tissue. See, he's a real doctor, yeah. not instruments, not yet. And some kids drew pictures with no people at all, just all kinds of, you know, computerized equipment and everything else. And, it, and I'd say the same with the police, that there are police who wear a gun to give them power, you know? like the guy who kneeled and choked somebody, yeah, yeah. where somebody else says, yeah, I have a gun, but it's to help protect people. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help the people. And, and so we need to understand ourselves. And I looked at why did you become a doctor? I like people. I like using my hands. I like science. Um, you know, all those things were part of it. Um, and, but I began to realize, you know, I like fixing things, that if you put those things together, you can't fix everything. They look at the title of that book and realize how perfect everything is. What I went through was how imperfect everything is. Now my word is the world is perfectly imperfect because as God said, if I made a perfect world, it would have no meaning. None of you would know what to do with yourselves. So I, I had to look at why didn't God make a perfect world? You see, why do we have all these things going on? You want to fix things and you can't. You want to use your hands? Yeah, yeah, but you can't cure every person. Uh, science is wonderful, but it also you know, gives us diseases too. So it, it was struggling with all those issues. And uh, I would say I was never a normal doctor. And what was fascinating, one of my partners who was also in a healthy way, not a normal doctor, very spiritual, Dr. Richard Selzer, in books and books too, we were not a normal surgical practice. Um, but after I went to that weekend workshop and sat with all my patients, I came back on Monday, walk in the office, and he looks at me and says, you're gone. I said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you are on Friday. You're going to leave surgery. And mm -hmm. I think it was 10 years later, I did retire. I mean, because it was the beginning of a home. But that's the part that was amazing. I mean, he looks at me and says, you're gone. <laughs> but he was that kind of intuitive young man. And I'd say, like Charlie, you know, you sense something in them. Yep. There's being something that other people don't feel or see. And... Uh, so yeah, that it impresses the hell out of me and makes us realize what Jung said. Oh, and the other quote from Jung, 
The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. For there, the key thing is the story, for it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. Hmm. So I became what I call the Jungian surgeon. Um, Awesome. Because Jung diagnosed a brain tumor from a dream. Uh Uh-huh. there's a certain area in the brain um, where, I mean, from the description of this man's dream, where he had a tumor that was blocking the flow of fluid, um, and he, he brought up the word uh, milky fluid. That's what it was. Jung diagnosed at the base of the brain there's an area called the mammary bodies because they're two mounds, mm-hmm. um, and. Jung diagnosed him with a brain tumor at the base of the brain, they blocking the flow of cerebrospinal fluid. And that's just what the guy had. Now, wow. you see, but every medical student isn't told that. That's what drives me nuts. You get information about disease, but you don't get an education about people, mm-hmm. you see, and dreams and drawings and things like that. So that's the part that frustrates the hell out of me. And why, yeah, one of my books, The Art of Healing, has a lot of drawings in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like, you know, Susan Bach and others, I mentioned other books also. But it needs to become a part of our training and teaching. And then I learned to say to people, what are you going through? What do you mean? I don't want your diagnosis. What is it like to have this disease? Oh, the pressure. What's it like? Failure, roadblock. And some say wake up call, a new beginning. I don't worry about them. But if you say pressure, I say, what's the pressure in your life? And boy, you'd be amazed at people's eyes going. Hmm. Yeah, this one woman in severe pain was being admitted to the hospital when I talked to her about what she was going through. Because she was in the emergency room. I was trying to relieve the pain until they got her upstairs to get her in bed. And she said the word pressure. So I said, let's do a meditation relieving pressure in your life. Mm-hmm. 15 minutes later, the nurse walked over to me and said, it's her marriage. Her pain is gone. She's going home to work out her marriage. Mm-hmm. That impresses even me. Yeah. Cause I didn't, say to her, okay, what's the pressure in your life? Because I had just met her and I didn't feel that it was right to immediately intrude. You know, if I'd known her for a year, I would have said, what's going on? Because here's another example, lady um, with cancer. I said, what's it like? Failure. How does failure fit your life? Well, I have cancer, my body failed. I said, that's not my question. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Hmm. Now, I know another woman with the same story. Her parents were alcoholics who committed suicide and told their children to commit suicide. Hmm. She said, I disappointed them when I tried and it didn't work. But she began to come to me to help her. And I can tell you, as a surgeon, I didn't know what to do. And I did what was the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Give you a test question. Yeah. You have to be blind or deaf tomorrow. Which would you pick? 
Oh, wow. Oh, that's hard. I, I guess death. Yeah. You're what most people do, except musicians. Yeah. yeah. Long answer. Yeah. You wouldn't be doing this show if you were deaf. Remember that? That's, that's true. Helen Keller taught me that one. Hmm. Because I used to sit and listen to this young woman scream about her life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the hell to do for her. And I learned later, that's why you did what you needed. I'd just sit there in the office listening. She told me, I even said to her once, oh, fuck your father. Because all she kept doing was screaming about her family. And, um, but Helen Keller said, I've heard of the stars of the rainbows of the play of light on the waves. These I would like to see, but far more than sight, I wish for my ears to be open. The hmm. voice of a friend, the imaginations of Mozart. Deafness is darker by far than blindness. Hmm. Why? Because when you listen to me, I learn about myself. After talking to you for an hour, I hear what I'm saying and mm-hmm. learn from that too. See? Yeah. And you do the same thing. So I had many people in the office who would thank me for this remarkable conversation. <laughs> and I had never said a word. <laughs> Imagine talking for an hour and yeah. then saying to me when the session is up, that was wonderful. Greatest conversation I've ever had with anyone. Thank you. Yeah. And I yeah. can not say anything except, mm, And I didn't know what to do, and I learned from Helen I did the right thing. Yeah. Again, I'm a surgeon, I'm not a psychotherapist. Yeah. So when they were, I was sitting there thinking, what the hell can I tell them? What can I do? And they would just go on talking. But I think you, um, yeah, I think. I think you're kind of a psychotherapist. You were studying young and using it. And oh, yeah, I was learning. Know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I wasn't trained to know what to answer. Um, I mean, yeah. I remember in our last interview, you said something like that, too. You got all this trained. You, you became a doctor, a surgeon, but nothing trained you or helped you about the psychological aspect. Right. And, uh, yeah, and not to treat the patient's experience. Yeah. You know, that's what I never was taught you know because and you look at medical ads that drives me nuts why oh uh, you because, can't look at them you know <laughs> you know you listen to them i'm depressed yeah. i went to my doctor he prescribed an antidepressant i feel better now yeah. and i i've written to drug companies i've given it up but i'd say excuse me if my house burned down and my family was killed and i'm depressed don't you think the doctor should also say tell me what's happening in your life hmm. and then the ad could say and we had a talk and he prescribe the antidepressant and I feel better now. None of the drug companies have ever answered me. No, no, it's oh, an interesting business. with medical journals. You write to a medical journal. They say it's interesting, but it's inappropriate for our journal. Like the stuff I'm telling you about yeah. drawing and dreams. Yeah. You send it to the psychiatry journal, it comes back again. And this really happened. And it said, yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. So again, you see, you walk into a doctor's office, what are you going to get? I'll treat your head, you know what I mean? Your emotions, your mind, or I'll treat your body. But I don't connect them and work together with them. And that's something I learned to do. You can't separate somebody's mind and their body. Monday morning, I always say, is the simplest example. 
There are more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses on Monday morning. And one more. Harvard students are asked, did your parents love you? Those who said no, by middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. Hmm. Those who said yes, 24% had. Yeah. And so I realized also how lucky I was and why it really turned me into who I am. My parents loved me. Hmm. As I say, they gave me mottos to live by, that money is to make the life you know, of everyone easier. You know, so if you won the lottery, you help people. And, you know, God is redirecting you and do what makes you happy. So they didn't help me make decisions, which also drove me crazy. I need to decide what I ought to do. Well, do what makes you happy. Because my father said to me, if he had a choice, he wouldn't have told me to be a doctor. Because hmm. he was in the business world with American Broadcasting Company. He said, I could get you a job, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't say, you know, why don't you do what I want you to do? It was, do what makes you happy. You want to be a doctor? Fine, be a doctor. And the other thing, see, that I liked about him as a survivor, because I got married while I was still in medical school. Mm -hmm. And um, it was also a coincidence that my wife and I met. But anyway, and I had no money. I'm always going to school. And I said to him one day, you know, I really feel guilty that I have no way of repaying you or doing anything. He said, you don't have to. If I don't want to help you, I'll say no. <laughs> he lived the sermon. Yeah. Yeah. He'd say no. So I stopped worrying about, and thank God I won scholarships in medical school and, and college. So I felt less guilt, you know, to at least a few hundred bucks, <laughs> you know, were taken off the bill. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what but I think the married life also made me a different medical student. Hmm. You know what I mean? That yeah. because I was living a real world with a wife. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just in a dormitory, you know, living in isolation and not appreciating the troubles of the world. See, You're again, already grown up. The, the one roommate I had when I first went into medical school before I got married uh, was somebody who was, he, I think he was 30 years older than I was, who came back to have a second career. He gave up what he was doing to become a doctor. Hmm. And um, it was like rooming with your father. Hmm. And again, why did I end up with him? I was in another room in the nursing dormitory when my roommate said, oh, a friend of mine is coming to go to medical school here too. Would you mind giving up your place? Let him come here and you take his room. So I end up in a room with somebody 30 years older than I am. Hmm. And it was amazing. Yeah. He wouldn't yeah. let me be a kid. You know what I mean? He wouldn't let me go out in the hallway and worry about tomorrow's test. <laughs> I, I, and, and that's how, in a sense, immature I was. I'm letting my roommate tell me what to do. <laughs> I get up yeah, to go out yeah. in the hall and said, no, you're not allowed to go out there, not with them all worrying about the Mars test. You sit down and study. And I would sit down. That's, That's how immature huh? I was. Yeah. But I needed it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah well, he's and a good mentor. My wife took over my life. Mm -hmm. I laughed too because I said to her, can I have on, my name on our checks? No. <laughs> 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 she, she was a school teacher and she 
you know, treated me like one of the kids and she taught uh, uh, kindergarten. And um, it, it was wonderful because she knew how to deal with children and take care of them and taught me a lot of things yeah. that you needed to know. You yeah. Know? Oh, and when I said a coincidence, we were both working at a summer camp. She was in charge of first grade girls. I was the least experienced uh, counselor in first grade boys. And one day we were just standing at the pool and I said, you know, it's really nice the pool's open at night. So we want to come back to take a swim. And she said, are you asking me for a date? <laughs> and I wasn't because she was so pretty and I did not expect she would ever go out with me. But as soon as she said, are you asking for a date? I said, oh yes, of course. She said, all right, you know, and that was the start of yeah, our cool. relationship. Yeah. And when I had a past life, she was in that too. Tell and us about this past life. You didn't tell me about that in the last interview. See, a friend over the phone heard how busy, like I'm saying, I have an interview. I can't talk. Why are you living this life? Because she's saying, you're so damn busy, you know, why are you living this life? And suddenly I went into a trance. Mm -hmm. I said to her, oh my God. She said, what's the matter? I have a sword in my hand. I'm killing people and they're pets. Maybe that's why I'm a surgeon, to help people with the knife. And then it, it all went blank because hmm. I mean, it was just wiping me out. Wow. Then like a week or two later, I was flying cross country without my wife. So I'm sitting alone on the plane and I always say it's like a movie came up. Suddenly I'm watching myself in Ireland with my Lord saying to me, I want you to kill the neighbor's daughter. He's a pain in the butt. He's intruding on our property and land. I want you to teach him a lesson. I said, well, why don't I kill him? No, I want you to kill his daughter. And what if I don't, then I'll kill you. Okay, I'm going. So I went to their castle convinced them that I was just traveling through, could I spend the night, you know, that kind of thing. And found out where the young lady's room was at night. And I went up there and I walk in and she had a dog and I had a treat for it, but that didn't quiet the dog. So I split the dog's head open. And that noise woke her up because I wanted to kill her in her sleep, make it easy. And she turned over and it was my wife. Mm -hmm. And I raised the sword and chopped their head off. Wow. And cried for hours and hours and hours. I took the head to my Lord and I said, are you happy now? He said, I didn't do it. You did it. Hmm. Okay. I went for therapy then. Mm -hmm. uh, James Hillman, the Jungian therapist. And as I started to tell the story, the first thing he did, Bernie, do you hear what you're saying? What do you mean? You keep saying my Lord. I said, yeah, it's the Lord of the castle. No, Bernie, it's your Lord. Go home and relive this. And as soon as he said that to me, hmm. it told me why I was always questioning Abraham and Jesus. Mm -hmm. God says, I want you to sacrifice your son to Abraham. How the hell can you say yes? Why don't you say, you know, take me, leave the kid alone. Yeah. And I always fantasied if I were Jesus, I'd jump off the cross because I can 
do miracles. So I would just unplug myself, jump down and say to people, now pay attention, look what I just did, what I'm capable of. Will you listen to me for a minute? You know, um, and I really went home to struggle with that. So my Lord says to me, I want you to kill the neighbor's daughter. I said, all right, I'm going. Mm-hmm. He said, no, Bernie, I needed to know you had faith in me. And I mean, he didn't call me Bernie, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I needed to know you have faith in me. I want you to go there and bring them here so we can resolve this difficulty. Hmm. So I go and I convince them because the father heard me talking to the daughter that I really want to resolve this and help you. And he said, you know, the way you're talking, I know I can trust you. We'll go with you. I said, yes, I'll stand in front of you. So we go, I walk in, my Lord says, step aside. There's nothing for them to be worried about. Um, And then he looks at me and a young woman and he says, you know, you two, I can see, have developed a relationship. What I want to do, you two get married, we'll give you the land as a wedding gift and we have nothing to fight over anymore. We'll all be one family. And, and, you know, and I didn't make any of this up. I mean, it just came flowing out. Yeah, yeah. I think here we are in this life that we're married. Hmm. It's like, you know, resolving it all in, in a future life. And let me say this, there's a story that I was reading that really struck me. And then when this happened, a guy buys a farm from another man and he's plowing and he hits something, digs it up, it's a box of treasure. So he takes it to the other guy. He says, hey, this was on your land. And the other guy says, it's not mine. You bought the land, it's yours. No, it was your land, it's yours. <laughs> and the two of them are fighting. And the third guy comes by and says, what the hell are you fighting over? And they tell him, he says, well, I have a solution. You have a son, you have a daughter. Tell them to get married and give them this as a wedding present. <laughs> when I read that, it, and that was before, you know, my life experience, it was like, boy, that means something to me, that solution. And then it ended up being the solution to my past life that the two of us married. And now there's nothing to fight over because we're all one family. Interesting. But that's part of why I remain a mystic. And I made it as well tell you this, since my wife died, her, I mean, she is still with me doing things. Hmm. It is totally mystical. The first, you start out finding pennies from heaven, pennies everywhere. Yeah. But more significant, and they've been called pennies for heaven in our family when my mother died, it started. Mm-hmm. We were married on the, t- on the 11th, five or six times. I can't remember because it's so many times. I have found a dime and a penny in places you would never expect. Hmm. And what was really wonderful was the Mother's Day weekend. My wife was born on the 9th. That was Saturday. Sunday was Mother's Day. And the 11th, the day we got married, was Monday. On Saturday, I did a wash of, you know, scraps and towels and things. When it's dry, I open the dryer, take them out, and there's a dime and a penny in the dryer lying there, you know, on the thing that tumbles. Yeah, yeah. No explanation for how we could get there. I even found it in an outdoor um, 
bird bath I have that was so filled with dirt and leaves, <laughs> a voice said, clean the bird bath. I cleaned it. There was a dime and a penny in it. <laughs> but what blew my mind even more makes me now believe in all kinds of mystical things that you see on television programs, you know, the people uh, that I always thought that's kind of weird. But I'm making the bed on Sunday morning and I go around to the side my wife used to sleep on and pull everything tight again. But when I picked up the blankets and the sheet, they were pulled out of my hands. I mean, literally, hmm. my hands, instead of staying closed, opened. And these things flew across the bed. And they're lying on the mattress, you know, which is covered by the sheet that fits it were a dime and a penny. Now, how the hell is that going to get there? You know, you yeah, can't yeah. say it fell out of your pocket while you're taking a nap. I don't take a nap under all the covers, you know. If I'm going to lie down with my clothes on and money in my pocket, I'm lying <laughs> on top of everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I may add, I keep my wife's picture on my heart and the dime and the pennies are stapled yeah, to the yeah. back because yeah. it's incredible. Cool. And um, oh, and, and even again, mind, body. What organ in my body do you think had trouble nine months after my wife died? Oh, your heart, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My heart had what's called auricular fibrillation. You know, the beats go nuts. Yeah. And uh, it was so typical. But again, how did I know I'd be okay? My wife was born on 9-9. I go to the emergency room. I walk in and they yell, put him in room nine. <laughs> we don't have a room for you up in the hospital yet. <laughs> Next morning, we've got a room. I go up, it's room 819. And eight symbolizes a new beginning. But together, huh. it's 9-9. Nine, nine. Yeah, yeah. I look at my wristband that they give you. One is to identify you as a patient. Two is, you know, the experience that you're having. So every time you come, you get a new wristband. Mm -hmm. And that one changes. But what do you think my identification number is at Yale New Haven Hospital? 899-6633. All nines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so was the other one. Mm -hmm. What's the case to them for? I mean, it could be seven, two, five, four, but it always added up to nines. One time it didn't. And I thought, what the hell's going on? Because I was always saying to the nurses, look, it all adds up to nine, you know, to go for a doctor's visit. And then one day it didn't. I realized it's your anniversary. Hmm. It was 7-Eleven, you know, oh. seven and the seven and four and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what would but, Carl Jung or your Jungian therapist say about that numerology? Well, this is his word. He said, numbers have quanti express quantity and have meaning. Mm -hmm. That's his sentence. Hmm. Quantity and meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say number eight is a new beginning. When I saw that, I knew I'm going to get well because every religion has seven days in a week. Hmm. but different number of days in a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See? So number eight is that new beginning. And uh, when I saw that eight on my hospital room and on my wristband, I knew my wife was saying, you'll be okay. You know, it's yeah. a new beginning. Awesome. So yeah, that, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. That's absolutely. 
Oh, and one other that was sort of unique. I mean, I'm still trying to get my wife to arrange lottery numbers so we can <laughs> impress the whole freaking world. Because we have five kids with twins, so we have six birth dates. Mm -hmm. So I want to play, you know, all those six birth dates and win. And then let yeah. people know that my wife did it. It's not a coincidence. They, uh, it's the power of, of consciousness. Um, so we haven't won yet, but I keep trying. I'll How are you going to do that? Out. Are you having a seance or a meditation? Well, I talk to her. Yeah, yeah. I just talk to her because I know she's around. She tells you the numbers. What is it? Six forty nine. No, no. I, I, she knows our birthdays. Three, nine, wow. fourteen, twenty two, twenty three, twenty six. So I keep telling her to do that. And if we need a Powerball number, it should be your birthday nine. You know what I mean? So yeah. I keep saying that to her, and we'll see if with time she can manage that. Uh, because I said to her, I need a new pair of gloves. Last mm -hmm. winter, I got a hole in the fingers. I park at Stop and Shop. I come back to my car. What's lying on the ground next to the driver's door? A pair of gloves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this That's car crazy. next to me is not a new car. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you could say, well, somebody came and dropped their gloves. No, that's the car that was there when I drove in. Yeah. Or so he now, was finding the pennies, yeah. I have- there are times I'll be told, use that parking space. Yeah. Check out at that counter. Yeah. And that's where I find a diamond a penny lying on the countertop. I have similar, maybe not so profound experiences. On my birthday, I always have some kind of luck that happens to me. I'll get something for free out of the vending machine or something. So maybe, maybe you could explain that, the difference, or is it the same, this Carl Jung synchronicity concept or meaningful coincidences or... Well, I think both things. I think there's something in us um, mm -hmm. that... You know, as you said, the future is unconsciously created so that in mm -hmm. some ways you're creating it and you go to that certain place at that time and the coincidence happens. Mm -hmm. so your yeah. consciousness leads you there, yeah. like to that aisle. Um, I yeah, hear voices yeah. quite often, literally hear someone talking to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had incredible experiences. Um, now, don't yeah. say that to the wrong person, though, or they'll put you away, right? That's one of yeah. those questions. On well, the I love, uh, I forgot the comedian. Um, <laughs> she said, if God talks to you, it's called schizophrenia. If you talk to God, it's called prayer. But, um, <laughs> you know, the reason I know, I heard the voice mm -hmm. and what it has led me to do. I mean, the day my father died, I was asked by the voice, how did your parents meet? I said, I don't know. Ask your mother when you get to the hospital. Turns out my father lost a coin toss and had to take my mother out. And my father <laughs> died laughing because of stories my mother was telling. Huh. He looked so wonderful and healthy. I thought he was going to change his mind because everybody in the family came because he said, I'm going to die Sunday afternoon. So everybody came to be with him. And I thought he's having such a good time with my mother's stories. He'll say, I'm not going to die today. It's too much fun. Hmm. But when the last person walked in, and again, he couldn't know who's coming. Hmm. But when the last person who said, I'm coming, walked in, he took his last breath. And, and, yeah. yeah. See, and then there were people in the room who said, oh, yeah, we saw a spirit leave. Hmm. And, you know, they're not crazy people. And, yep. and people aren't afraid to tell me stories. So, you know, when somebody in the family has 
dies an accidental death and then their sister gets married and they have cameras for the wedding event and they see this weird shadow in the photographs and everybody is saying, yeah, 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 that's your brother. He was there. I saw him. I know, hmm. you know, wow. and when my mother-in-law died, you know, who I drove crazy, but we loved each other and had fun together. I was at a religious service at the local synagogue and into the room, because I'm sitting here looking up and I see from the side where the door is this sh shadow about that size, <laughs> say a yard, all right, in length, come in the room, come up over my head and say, goodbye, Bernie. <laughs> I knew it was my mother-in-law had just died. She was in a nursing home. So I got up, drove down there, I walk in, and the nurse says, oh, you've heard. <laughs> I said, yeah. I couldn't hear, I knew. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, you'd say, what's crazy about me that these things happen? I, I think my mind is open, I'm not judging, mm -hmm. okay? You know, what comes to mind uh, a lot is uh, maybe you were the start of holistic medicine or this mind body. Is there anybody else like you that, that or is it just? Well, oh, there are other people. We started the Holistic Medical Association and that's still uh -huh. running. Uh -huh. I don't know if anybody was as crazy as I was, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and since I experienced it, I wasn't afraid to get up and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, when you have a near-death experience and you're four years old, you don't know that's a strange thing. Yeah. I didn't talk to people about it because I thought everybody must know what the hell that is. Mm -hmm. But it's just such a wonderful thing. Literally, I was upset that I didn't die. <laughs> Remember, this is a four-year-old. Yeah. Floating, yeah. You know, like up in the air. You can mm -hmm. see. I could hear. I could think. And... Mm -hmm. When I didn't die, the first words I uttered were, who did that? <laughs> See, I know now I have an angel. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he did a Heimlich maneuver. Because I used to say, and interesting, I never said I vomited. I would always say, the boy on the bed threw up. Hmm. And all the pieces, the toy pieces that I aspirated came flying out. Huh. And he started breathing again. And I got sucked back into his body. And wow. it took me a while to realize, do you hear what you're saying? You never say I, you always say the boy on the bed. Yep. I realized, yeah, because I ain't that body. <laughs> I'm more than that body. I'm in it, but that's not me. This is me, you know, <laughs> that survived. And when I mentioned I drew a picture for Elizabeth, in the picture is who turned out to be because I met him in a meditation. His name is George. I didn't understand why he was dressed the way he was. Hmm. Um, and then I gave a lecture once at a spiritual location. And a lady came out of the audience at the end and said, uh, well, the first one said, that was better than usual. I said, yeah, I agree with you. Because I was talking and had nothing to do with what I planned. It, hmm. it, it, it's, it was like somebody was using me. The second person said there was a man standing in front of you for the entire lecture. So I drew his picture for you. And it was my angel, George. Wow. You know, with his beard, funny hat. Turns out that's the Jewish prayer camp, but more from the 1800s. Cause I saw a picture of a, 
um, one of my ancestors, and he was dressed the same way, you know, the beard, yeah. cap on. So but I this person who drew the picture. Let me say this. Yeah. I spoke at a Christian funeral. Uh-huh. I come out, Alba Worrell, the healer, while the procession is leaving, says to me, hey, Bernie, are you Jewish? <laughs> what are you asking for? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. Huh. <laughs> and she described George in total detail. And she's the one who made me understand why he was dressed that way. Yeah. Because with his spiritual robe and everything else. Did everybody uh, see him? No. I mean, everybody doesn't come up to me and say they saw him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more than one person. And I think, again, these are unique people. Like Alva Warrell was a healer. Yeah, I had an injury once. She put her hands on my leg. The heat from her hands was incredible. Mm -hmm. And in two minutes, I get up, walked away fine. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe in her. My wife told her to help me because we were at a medical meeting where she was a speaker. And I said to my wife, she's nuts. What's her name? Alga Worrell, W-O-R-R-A-L-L. Alga and Ambrose Worrell. They were intuitive people. I mean, you even told when they were kids, that. they saw people in the room. You know, like like somebody saw George in front of me. Mm-hmm. When, when they were kids, you, they'd walk in to visit somebody and they'd say, oh, who's the old lady on the couch? And, and people say, there's no old lady. And she, they describe it and they say, oh, that's our grandmother who used to live here. Yeah. Crazy. Amazing. Yeah. You told so, me about that laying on hands experiment oh, yeah. uh, the last time. They tried to disprove it, and they actually proved it. And uh, I looked that up, and it was amazing, very interesting. And uh, yeah, but that's another topic for another. Po- I could well, do. Well, that's why in the book, somebody <laughs> the no endings, only beginnings. Yeah. Somebody used it. I'm not sure I liked what they said, but God's name is Alice, and the reason was I said God is a loving, intelligent, conscious energy. Mm-hmm. So they took all the letters, A-L-I-C-E, ah. a loving, intelligent, conscious energy, and gave God the name Alice. <laughs> um, but that's, to me, what God is made up of, loving, intelligent, conscious energy. Yeah. There's love, there's an energy, there's consciousness, and intelligence. So that's how you start creation. Because I'm in awe of creation. Mm-hmm. I say, think of making an eye. How <laughs> yeah. the hell do you work that out? Yeah. I mean, our, our whole body, our whole nervous system, I mean, all, and I mean, just life in general, nature. That's why Charlie's taking photographs all the time. It's, it's wonder. Yeah, because he and I both, I don't know what pages that was on, wrote, yeah, here it is. See, God helped me open it. He wrote a poem called My Brother Trees, and I wrote a poem called Trees. Um, And again, that's what I found so interesting, that we're writing poems about the same things and what they meant to us. That's cool. But what about his father? Um, Is that your grandson? Hmm. Well, his father also was a spiritual young man, Mm -hmm. taught me a lot. Um, His father and mother got divorced. But, but his mother, I think because the father got maybe too practical and the mother stayed spiritual. So they have a store called the Wisdom of the Ages. Um, uh-huh. You can access access it through my website. 
but th these are the lessons I learned from the person who came to be his father. I mean, he, he's, he does like home therapy, massage therapy. Uh, so even though the parents got divorced, mm -hmm. they're still two spiritual beings. Yeah. And I'm sure he learned from both of them. But the, the lessons I learned from our son, Keith, was he came to me one day. He said, first, I don't get 20% of your time. I said, what are you talking about? You have five children. And our brother gets 30 or 40%. I said, yeah, he's driving us crazy. So he gets more time. But I want you to know I love you. That I really respected. See, he was such a sweet, loving kid. He's at the end of the hall you know, all the bedrooms mm -hmm. and he could interpret it as they don't love me. Look where they put me at the end of the hall. I'm the furthest away from them. Mm -hmm. But he came up to me and said, you don't love me as much as my brother. How many kids would do that? <laughs> then he came to me one day when he was seven years old and he said, I need an x-ray of my right knee. Mm -hmm. Now, because of my work, I thought if a kid says that, he probably does need an x-ray. But I thought, it's probably nuts, though. Doesn't mean he really has anything. So I said, why don't you take a hot bath and let's see what happens. No, I need an x-ray. And once he did that, I said, okay, we get an x-ray. He had a bone tumor. Wow. Wow. What's my impression? Your leg will come off and you'll be dead in a year. Because mm -hmm. that type, what's called an osteogenic sarcoma, he's been living with it for a while. You know, it wasn't the first day his leg hurt. Hmm. So he had surgery, and we were very lucky. He had a rare, benign, and very painful type tumor called an osteoid osteoma. Hmm. Now, before we knew what the diagnosis was, I tried to let his siblings know and him what the future very likely held. You know, that your brother would probably lose his leg. He probably also only has a year or two to live, et cetera. Because I wanted them to pay attention and not be running around acting like idiots in this dramatic time. Next morning, I'm sitting at home at my desk he walks in, eight, seven, remember. Dad, what is it? Can I talk to you for a minute? Sure, Keith, what is it? You're handling this poorly. He seven years old. Therapist, yeah. He said, look, we're trying to have a nice day and you want us in our bedroom depressed. <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, go ahead out in the front yard. And because I was really acting that way. What are you yeah. doing running around laughing, having fun? He's going to be dead in a year. Go to your room and act serious. <laughs> you know? And yeah. fortunately, of course, I was wrong. But imagine a seven-year-old coming up to his doctor father and say, you're handling this poorly. <laughs> that's awesome. He's yeah. filled with love. And yeah. I think that's the part also that benefited Charlie. Because uh, Keith is always emailing his love, you know. Yeah, to me and pictures and words and he's that kind of person. Yeah, that's awesome Sad that they got a divorce. But I think some of it was that he isn't practical, if you know what I mean. He's so busy loving. Mm -hmm. 
he doesn't know how to run, <laughs> you know, a business yeah, yeah. or a house or take care of things. And so I think that was a part of the problem. But he's yeah. a sweet, that's why I say, living with people, massage therapy, doing things like that. And mm. that makes everybody feel better. That's awesome. Are you still doing seminars or giving seminars and stuff? Well, the coronavirus sort of ended oh. everything. So yeah. You have an yeah. audience, you can't have group therapy. But yeah, I'm doing, as a matter of fact, Friday, yeah, tomorrow, Friday, I'm doing a, a Zoom type thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not exactly Zoom. We don't necessarily see each other, but uh, everybody can call in and, and we have group therapy at two mm-hmm. o'clock. They can look on my website, BernieSiegelMD.com. I'm pretty sure the phone number is there mm-hmm. and people can call in. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk to them. Yeah. Cause I want to do that. I might do more of them. Um, and I have a friend who has a happiness club. That's something we do Monday night. Um, mm-hmm. His name is Lionel Ketchian. He's been doing it for years. Um, That's cool. Talk to him on your show. Um, yeah. But be, and one of the things I learned was because it's hard for me not to keep talking and it's two hours, the Happiness Club. And Lionel finally said, Bernie, you'll have the last half hour. Mm-hmm. So I have to be quiet for an hour and a half and make notes <laughs> and listen. And I, almost every week I say, oh, I can't do this again. But once I get my half hour you know, to help people and share what I hear and they're saying, I feel better and then I'm coming back next week. You know, So Amazing, in ways yeah. we're doing And what's that. his name? Lionel, L-I-O-N-E-L, mm-hmm. K-E-T-C-H-I-A-N. And the awesome. Happiness Club is what it's called. I mean, he does it in many ways with many people. Doing well, if you it- don't mind, we'll put, um, you know, in the show notes of this podcast, your website and stuff like that. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Before, before I go, one last question. What, what is the most profound thing you learned from studying Carl Jung or his works? It's just, I'd say, the, the synchronicity that the future is unconsciously prepared, mm-hmm. and that our consciousness is what is the most significant thing. The body is an instrument for which the consciousness, you know, can utilize and, and do practical things. Uh, mm-hmm. But to me, it's, the, it's this integration of mind-body um, and how the consciousness unites us and is immortal and is, you know, yeah. that it goes on. Cause I think when we talk about past lives, it's not me living, it's me having that experience. You know what I mean? So it's not me and my body reappearing. It's my consciousness re-entering someone else's body and being with them. I was talking to somebody who interviewed me the other day. Because I said, look, one of the prime examples for me is a five-year-old who's standing on a stage playing a violin at age five with a concert orchestra. What the hell? And that boy said, when I saw a violin the first time in my life, I had to run over and grab it. I said, to me, that was such proof of this being a part of his past life. And the person interviewing me said, at five years I started playing the violin too. Hmm. And I've seen that in some of our kids. Yeah. One of them, the one that caused all the trouble, he could sit down at the piano and play it. He never had a piano lesson. 
how the hell does he know what? No, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me there for three days, I couldn't. <laughs> That's why my opera singing mother-in-law, I wasn't allowed to sing in the house or the car because it drove her crazy. <laughs> but, but you know, how does a kid have that happen? And I'd say again, it's what's put into us. Like my wanting to be an artist. I very much might have become an artist if I knew you could earn a living as an artist. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was deciding, I said, yeah, I'd love to be an artist, but how do you make money as an artist? I don't want to decorate things. So I said, that's not going to work. If somebody had said to me, you could paint something, a picture and sell it, I would have said, oh, then I don't have to work a day in my life. Because one last line, when you do something that makes you lose track of time, you can't age. Is that, is that your dog in the background? Yeah, he's got a cough from a chest infection. Oh. Rags, yeah, you go read help him. poem Rags on the <laughs> internet. Read it and learn from the dog. Uh, yeah, that, you talked about that in the last yeah. podcast. But actually... But anyway, <laughs> the, the, if you do what makes you lose track of time, mm -hmm. you are, I mean it, ageless in, this, in that time. So if I'm spending two hours and I have no sense that it's two hours, I'm only half hour older because of the message your body is getting. Hmm. And, and so again, I think it's the most healing thing to do. And so I used to, when I had body problems, I could stand and paint a portrait or stand at the operating table with no pain for hours. Hmm. As soon as I was done painting or the surgery, Boom. I was on the floor to relieve my pain. That impressed the hell out of me. Yeah. It never occurred to me, you're not hurting until a friend called me on the phone and I said, what the hell are you bothering for? I told you not to call. My wife wouldn't be here for, you know, like 45 minutes. He said, honey, uh, honey, he said, Bernie, it's two hours since I called. What are you yelling at me for? <laughs> that woke me up. Because I'm yelling at him for calling every 15 minutes, and he tells me it's two hours. So that's why I feel I'm 15 minutes older, not two hours older. Why did you do all, all those paintings? Well, they're all hanging around the house. Oh, you sell any? Pardon? Do you sell any not of your paintings? No, because they're our family. My wife, you see, what are you covering up? I painted myself in a cap, mask, and gown as if I was in the operating room. Mm -hmm. You don't even know it's me if you come in the house. That's and, in one of your and, books, isn't it? Pardon? That's I, in one of your books. I don't know. I may have discussed it. I don't, I don't know yeah. if the painting is there. But, oh, okay. Um, it, it, see, all those things woke me up because the family and our pets were tired of posing. So I said, I'll paint myself. And then I paint myself hidden. Mm. It, it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, because my wife, I had to paint her as who I knew she was. I wanted to paint her in an evening gown. And I didn't, that's not her, I said. So she's standing with her bike, you know, uh, and just, that's her. Cause we used yeah. to go bike riding and the kids in the same way. And, uh, and some of them had a message like painting a black child and a white child. You see my message to everybody is as a surgeon, we're all the same color inside, mm -hmm. you know? And so yeah. there are paintings that carry a message too, because that's something uh, that's that awesome. everybody needs to realize. Because one of my favorite questions, you ought to ask this if you ever have people on your show that would fit with, say, I have a photograph 
like say I'm a black man and I say to you, I have a photograph of one of us and you can't tell who it is. What's mm -hmm. your picture of? And people look at you like, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you black? What do you mean I don't know? A black minister who I knew would know the answer said, Bernie, and he points at his heart. I said, right. We're all the same color inside. Mm -hmm. And the five-year-olds know it. Yeah. You go to kindergarten and say, we're we all the same? Yeah, yeah. And they immediately point to their insides. <clears throat> yeah, it's awesome, huh? Yeah. My son I, is five years old. If so I was a president, really... yeah, I'd put up a poster saying, um, this is, you know, uh, a picture of uh, me. And it could be our insides, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or the picture of the black man who died. Yeah, yeah. who is it? Yeah. That would be a great photograph to put in the newspaper. Yeah, a beating heart. Donald Trump or the fellow yeah. who was, you know, yeah. cops. I'm going to have to write a letter to the editor. Yeah. I'm always doing that. They don't always publish them, but, uh, you know. I would they, love to see that letter. Will you, if you write it, um, I, w I would love to challenge you to write it tonight and put me in copy or something like that. All right, I'll try. That'd be awesome. I don't know I'd if be... I'll get it done tonight because it's late. I got to make dinner now. Okay. But, um, um, we'll see about that. Yeah. It's but, been great you know, talking to you. You know, you said I mentioned last time dog rags. Did you look up the poem? Uh, you you know, it's been a while since we talked. I don't remember, but, but anyway, I do remember dog, looking up something. <laughs> this fellow, why it touched me, the dog has saved lives in the army, you know, on the front protecting and doing things. Yeah. When he's discharged, he can't find the dog to take it home. Hmm. Goes back to medical school. That's when this turned me on. Hmm. Goes into the class and they have a dog cut open on the table. Oh yeah. Now I remember. Rags, and he yeah. licks his hand and dies. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now now I remember so that. That's, that's when cool. I got a voice. Go to the animal shelter. Huh. They I went down. This little guy, Rags, was sitting there. Everybody else, all the other dogs are running around going bananas, you know? And he's there. He looked so <laughs> sad. I just said, I'm taking him home. <laughs> and yeah. So he's been with me. How many dogs do you have now? Just one now. Okay. And, and uh... I had to eventually take back the Brady. Oh. Because a Cusky is so active. Yeah. Scared Working dogs. The house. Yeah. They're working well, dogs. I was get knocked over. All the other pets were hiding. You know, he wasn't aggressive, but no, he'd no. run through the house. Like, I, literally, when I brought him in, my wife said, he's been in every room of the house in five minutes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so it, it was impossible for me to get him to slow down. Well, he, he wants to pull a sled or something. You should have, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I took him back. and yeah, I, I've had some dogs like that where I've gotten farmers to take them so they could let them run all yeah. over the land. And that worked out well. All right. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, but one Thank more. You. What's on the horizon for you? You got any projects? Not specifically. I mean, I've had the book. Oh, I have another book coming out. Oh. Called Three Men, Six Lives. Okay. Because I wanted people to know about past lives. Okay. And so these are three guys the past lives 
are true stories, including mine, but the men are fiction. So it's a novel. Mm -hmm. I call it, you know, a nonfiction novel because mm -hmm. the stories are true, but the people are created. So I let people know who are reading it that one of the stories is mine because then I can still be a surgeon, you know, a doctor in, in the book, mm -hmm. uh, but not refer to it as me. Yeah. And do you have a deadline? When, when is it coming? Well, up? they're final editing it. I don't know when it'll come back because the editor is sort of a tough guy. I mean, like, <laughs> like his personality and mine, uh. you know, he thinks, you know, like I'm a little crazy about some things. Um, and to yeah. me, that's normal, you know, so. Yeah, well, you can always self-publish. So. Oh, well, yeah, it, it's the publisher is that sort of a thing where I'm a part of the process, hmm. but it's not me handing it to a publisher and say, publishing this. All right, I got to answer the phone now. Okay, Bernie, so see you next you. time. Bye. -bye. Bye. Okay. <laughs>